Hello, friends. Welcome to Re-Orthodox Theology, the podcast where we bridge the gap between church and seminary by renewing ancient commitments and exploring new theological ideas. You may be wondering about the re in the name. Well, it's a prefix that means again or back, indicating our commitment to revisiting and re-examining the timeless truths of the Christian faith in fresh and relevant ways. If you've been listening for a while, the name change just simply reflects the direction in which this podcast is going. Today on Reorthodox Theology, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Gregory Vall, Professor of Sacred Scripture at Notre Dame Seminary of New Orleans. With a PhD in Semitic Languages and Literatures from the Catholic University of America, Dr. Vall is an esteemed scholar and author of books such as Ecclesial Exegesis, a synthesis of ancient and modern approaches to scripture. We talk about Ignatius of Antioch and his Christology. Thanks for tuning in. All right, so Dr. Vall, thank you for joining the show. You're welcome. Good to be here. Yeah, so Ignatius of Antioch is an important character or uh, person in history, and I think he has an influential Christology that is still being uh, influential today. People don't really know it. But before we talk about his theology and Christology, can you just share a little bit on who he was and why his uh, thoughts and theology matter today? Sure. Yeah, I think the first thing to know about him is that he was a member of the church at Antioch, the same you know church that Barnabas and Paul had been members of roughly half a century earlier. Uh, Peter had spent time there, a church that clearly had great significance in the early uh, days of Christianity. Um, it was the first time you had a, uh, a a mix, a real mixed community of Jewish Christians and and Gentile Christians, uh, and and the first time that they were called Christians, right? Luke tells us all that in Acts of the Apostles, and so it really was a a, a Christian community that uh, was kind of working through the early stages of Christian identity, hmm. and that uh, is really big for Ignatius. He's he's building on that legacy of his home church at Antioch. Um, he's the one who coins the term Christianity, as far as we can tell, hmm. and the evidence for that's very strong. And he did it uh, so that he could sort of speak clearly about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, Christianismus and Judaismus. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's, you know, that he directly addresses that issue in two of his letters, and it's an issue that's still with us, right? Mm-hmm. That all through the church's history, that's been an issue and continues to be, but he's kind of a key figure in the very early days in that regard. Uh, so he's got a, a, a very significant perspective, and he belongs to a significant church. He also refers to himself um, as an episkopos, mm-hmm. overseer. It's also where we get our word bishop. Um, and... Um, he he actually calls himself the Episcopus of Syria, which is you know like a big jurisdiction, bigger than just Antioch itself, which was in Syria. 
Um, but um, in any case, he the um, the the identity and the structure of the local church is very important to him. He's the first person who speaks very clearly about um, the a sort of three tiered hierarchy, for lack of a better term, uh, in the local church: one bishop, a group of presbyters or elders, and deacons. Um, so he speaks about that, teaches about that at some length in several of the of the letters. Uh, so he's significant in that regard. Um, he's the first person to use the term Catholic Church, hmm. universal church. So while the local church is very important to him, he also has a, also has a kind of um, broad consciousness of the church as a whole, as one body of Christ. Hmm. And then if I add one other thing that I think is extremely important, he's an, he's an early student of the New Testament writings. He um, clearly had studied St. Matthew's gospel. Uh, he knows Joannine thought, whether he had read the, the gospel of John or knew it through um, oral tradition is not entirely clear. I think it's more likely he actually had read the gospel. Uh, but he, his his own thoughts very Joannine, it's very Mathean, and it's very Pauline. He read and uh, studied several of the of the letters of Paul, hmm. and he brings these three sort of major strands of New Testament thought, New Testament theology, the um, Synoptic, especially Mathean, the Joannine, and the Pauline together in a kind of what we would call a constructive mm-hmm. synthesis. Um, and he does it brilliantly and in a way that kind of um, begins to move in a trajectory toward the theology of the church fathers later on. So he's, for, for me, he was a big missing link. I mean, I, for years, many years, I had studied scripture and I was trying to also study the church fathers. And I was interested and fascinated by both, but I couldn't quite see how they went together. And Ignatius really helped me in that regard. Hmm. And I, I don't know if you said it, what, how early was uh, Ignatius, like w- after the New Testament? Yeah, his um, he, he probably died in or around 113 A.D., uh, you know, give or take five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know exactly when he's born, but he does seem to be a well-established leader, so Probably he was born in the 50s or 60s, um, hmm. maybe 70s, uh, it, uh, 60s or 70s, AD. Uh, he doesn't, he, he reveres Paul, but he never claims to have met Paul um, or Peter. He mentions Peter, but he never says that he met these people. Sure. So so he's, he's roughly half a century after after the death of Peter and Paul when he when he himself is martyred. Gotcha. Yeah. And he he mentioned a few of the letters. And so what are these letters that you were referring to? Yeah, he he clearly has read First Corinthians because he he uses phrases right out of First Corinthians several times, mm. um, almost as clearly Ephesians. And 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 especially when he's writing to the Ephesians, he's echoing Ephesians. That's not by accident and mentioning Paul mm-hmm. and Paul's letters. Um, I think less certainly, far less certainly, but very possibly he also um, knew Philippians, Galatians, and maybe Romans. 
uh, and and Hebrews, which we don't usually regard as a Pauline letter mm-hmm. nowadays, but um, there there are a number of places where he seems to be drawing upon Hebrews. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. uh, on his uh, Christology in your book, Learning yeah. Christ, which will be in the show notes of this podcast episode, uh, you claim that uh, central to his theology is unity between Jesus and the Father, but also a relational distinction. So can you can you elaborate on this understanding a yeah. little bit more and how um, he held those two concepts together and avoided modalism? Right. right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, he he really he refers to Christ as the Son of God or the Son of the Father. In fact, he uses that phrase, the Son of the Father, mm-hmm. in um, in his letter to the Romans, and that phrase is found only once in the New Testament in Second John, hmm. which is interesting. But whether he knew Second John or not, but anyway, he he refers to Jesus as the Son of the Father, and and he's very strong on. Um, establishing a kind of unique sonship, right? So, you know, if you compare St. Paul, um, Paul will say Jesus is the quios of God, the Son of God, but he'll also say that we are huioi, you know, sons or sons and daughters of God. Um, But Paul has a way of, uh, Paul obviously knows that there's a difference, and he uses this term quiathesia, adoptive sonship for us, Whereas Jesus presumably is, you know, not adopted. Mm-hmm. He's the natural son of God. Um, so Ignatius doesn't ex- doesn't do that uh, the same way. He handles it differently. Uh, he will refer often to God as Father, but it, virtually every time he's making it clear that he's the Father of Jesus, the Father of the Son. Mm. Uh, in in even in the few places where two or three places where he speaks of our, you know, coming to the Father, um, he will make it very, very clear we come to the Father through Jesus Christ. So that so there's a, a unique father-son relationship between Jesus and the Father. Mm-hmm. And then he's got, in Magnesians, he uses a number of kind of Joannine um, thoughts and phrases to make it clear that Jesus uh, was with the Father before the ages— you know, in others, before time, before the world, um, he's with the Father. And that, just like in, you know, the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. the Logos is with God. Um, and that suggests that that relational distinction exists already before the uh, ages. Mm. But, uh, and then in the very same part of the Magnesians, He'll refer to Jesus as the Logos, the Word, mm-hmm. but he says he's coming forth from, or he came forth from, the silence of God, which is very mysterious. Kind of, uh, I spent half a chapter on that, so mm-hmm. I better not get off on that <laughs> one. But um, he he uh, pretty clearly indicates that the 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 father son relationship is always there. In fact, he never says anything that would suggest that Jesus becomes the son mm-hmm. by being sent into the world. He, he's with the father and then he is sent into the world. And he uses that term sent as well in that same part of Magnesians, very mm-hmm. Joannine um, thought. Um, and uh, so so he's uh, he's got a very high Christology. He'll refer to Jesus as God mm-hmm. any number of times. 
especially in uh, Ephesians and Romans. And um, and yet there's you know this constant reference to the father son distinction and relationship, mm-hmm. uh, and those two just go together for Ignatius. There's no sense that that's a a problem or a difficulty. Mm-hmm. And then I think the real kind of clincher here, the crucial thing, is that um, Jesus is the only one who can totally reveal the Father. He's the only teacher, hmm. and, and Ignatius is the first person to explicitly say that God uh, revealed himself, manifested himself. It's also in Magnesians, but he has a similar phrase in Ephesians. Uh, and and so there's, there's no... Um, when, when the Son comes into the world and reveals the Father, it's not like we're getting a sort of diluted version or a sort of step-down, you know, transformer. There, there's, uh, he's, you know, there's no distance between the Father and the Son, hmm. and the Son is able to, God is able to reveal himself through the Son, in and through the Son. Um, so that, 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 that suggests a kind of, um, strict equality and, and yeah. oneness hmm. between the father and the son, while there's also this father son relationship. Right. So you mentioned high Christology. So for listeners that may not know what that means, can you explain that really quick? Yeah. I'm basically, it, it, this is a modern term. It's not an ancient one, mm-hmm. but the idea that, um, Jesus is recognized to be God, or at least in some sense, divine. Um, we, we would say that's a higher Christology rather than a Christology that focuses uh, on his humanity. We say that's a low Christology. Mm. But of course, in Ignatius and in really and the New Testament as well, it's, it's both. Um, sorry. Um, it, it's, you know, because he's both God and man, the Christology is both simultaneously high and low. Mm, mm-hmm. So in a, in a way, our modern sort of idea that you've got to be, uh, a Christology has to be plotted along this continuum between low and high is right off the bat misleading. It, mm. it doesn't really work for the New Testament, and it certainly doesn't work for Ignatius, because Ignatius is very strong in Christ's humanity. As mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about, yeah, um, because he's you know he's he's uh, in two of the letters polemicizing against people who are denying mm-hmm. Christ's true humanity. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that for a sec, because you 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 mentioned that he rejected um, those who regarded Jesus as a phantom, which I, I forget the the heresy. Is that Docetism? I can't remember at the moment. Yes, exactly, Docetism and. Uh, the in fact the the name of the heresy comes from his letters because he he oh. says that they um uh they thought Jesus only seemed to be flesh mm-hmm. that the verb seem docetio is where we get the word uh docetism oh, from Oh interesting I didn't know that Yeah that's fascinating yeah. So uh, how, so how does he reconcile yeah. that then because I know yep. uh at least for me as I'm learning about more and more of of who Christ is, um, 
Did the early church thinkers like Ignatius think that Jesus did not have flesh and bone in his preexistence and then yeah. assumed it after birth? Or how, how did he yeah. think about that? Yeah, that that's a great question. Uh, I think that Ignatius uh, pretty clearly sees the conception of Christ from the Virgin as the sort of turning point in that regard. Hmm. He's, he's quite clear that Jesus um, has his flesh through Mary from the line of David. So he'll repeatedly say that Jesus is, um, you know, from the seed of David or from the stock of David or race of David, genos. Hmm. Um, and in those passages, he'll speak of David and Mary right together, you know, and, and it's clear that it's it's at the, it even refers explicitly twice to the conception of Jesus. Um, his birth is important too, but that conception is seems to be the, the mm. critical moment. And Mary is significant in his Christology because she's the one through whom and from whom, in a sense, he receives that fleshly humanity. Mm. So I do think he, um, he, he holds that view that he was not flesh prior to the conception. Pro, the, the really key passage, though, for sort of putting that all together is in his letter to Polycarp, chapter 3, hmm. uh, where he says that, you know, he was um, not only invisible, but intangible, not handleable. Mm -hmm. It's not really a word, you know, not touchable and yeah. hand, not to be handled, not possibly handled. Um, and, uh, and also, akranos, timeless. Hmm. Um, so he was, in, you know, invisible, um, and, and in, in, um, impassable, uh, apathos. Hmm. So he, there was a time when he was invisible, um, couldn't, couldn't be handled or touched, um, couldn't suffer impassable, uh, and, um, and, and was timeless. Hmm. And then for our sake he became uh handleable mm -hmm. and um and and entered time and so forth that's that's the uh, and and capable of suffering that's the crucial thing he, the the reason he takes you know or becomes flesh or flesh bearing is so that he can suffer for us mm. so for ignatius the you know conception and birth from the virgin is crucial but the um uh, passion is the first one to use the term passion, pathos, to refer to Christ's oh, suffering as, as a noun. Um, it, it, it's, um, you know, that's the other inseparable pole. And, and there's a, there's a kind of dynamic view of in his Christology that something happens at the conception and something happens at the Paschal mystery, especially at the resurrection to to jesus mm -hmm. um so he doesn't you know he doesn't cease to be god right it, and but he um you know he takes on the limitations of flesh uh and and the ability to manifest himself in the flesh positively mm -hmm. takes that on through his conception and birth but then um something happens to that humanity to that flesh and blood humanity at his 
Paschal mystery at his resurrection. Um, it's it's transformed so that he can then become again impassable, hmm. um, you know, no longer able yeah. to suffer, um, not just in his divine nature, but in his humanity. Interesting. But, yeah, so that you kind of have to put together um, the different passages, but that, that passage in Polycarp 3 is, is a crucial one. Hmm. So I yeah. want to come back to your thoughts on Mary, because I'm sure uh, some Protestant brothers and sisters may shudder at the her yeah. name when talking about Christology. Um, but I, I'm curious, I'm asking you, how how do you reconcile then like the, the Old Testament passages that arguably could be referring to Christ manifested, like uh, the, the divine being wrestling um, Jacob or the divine uh, yeah. being right. coming um, right. and visiting Abraham with two other angels or the divine yeah. being in, in the in the fire with Radshak or with, you know, with Radshak, Meshach. Yeah. How, how yeah. do you reconcile that then? Is that, should we consider that just some random yeah. divine being or is that really? No. I mean, Ignatius, like the later church fathers would, you know, sees Jesus, uh, well, sees um, Christ or the son mm-hmm. as in some way present to the prophets mm-hmm. they, they they are they're the prophets and by he uses the term prophets very broadly and i think would include like all the writers in the old testament and and pro, and, and figures like jacob and so forth mm-hmm. um he he um uh, sees them as inspired uh, you know as as belonging to christ and the unity of Christ, which is the unity of God that he's bringing us into, mm-hmm. sees them as inspired by the same Holy Spirit, having the grace of Christ. So, so uh, they were, um, you know, they were, well, the, the pre-incarnate son is present to them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ignatius would say that. I think Clearly, the church fathers would explicitly say that um, it's it it can't be the same presence, the same sort of mode of presence as in the incarnation, which is a sort of full personal, concrete historical presence mm. of God. Um, but he is present. Mm. So I think the way to put the whole big picture together in this regard is to think of modes and degrees of God's presence and the Son's presence or the Word's presence, um, starting with creation itself. So God is present to us at every moment and in every place throughout the cosmos Mm -hmm. simply by being creator and by holding us in being, Mm -hmm. in existence, right? He's present to us. Uh, that's That's a real presence. It's not the greatest or the only or the definitive presence, but it is. And then you have this you know, definitive mode of presence in the incarnation and the Christ event. But in between, God can be present in various other ways and to other degrees. So, you know, there's there's this struggle in the Old Testament. Is is God, uh, you know, is, is the Lord present in the temple or not? Hmm. Some passages are very guarded, right, especially in Deuteronomy. Well, mm-hmm. no, he makes his name present. Right. But it doesn't say he doesn't dwell in the temple. But other passages, the priestly and some of the prophets, he dwells 
in in the temple in some mm. sense. So there's that that tension reflects, you know, a, a recognition that there's a kind of presence of God, a real presence of God, in the sanctuary in the wilderness and in the temple later built by Solomon. It's not definitive. They recognize that some earthly building can't hold God or contain God, mm. but it's the true God they're worshiping. He's revealed himself to Israel. He's given them a way to worship him that's, you know, authentic and worthy of him mm. and worthy of them and over against Canaanite worship, etc. cetera. Mm. And um, so in the end, it, it is a motive presence. And I think you have to say something like that mm. about the, the all the mysterious, or at least some of the mysterious apparitions to patriarchs and later figures. Yeah. Fascinating. No, that makes sense. And yeah. I have I hadn't really thought about uh Jesus pre existing in in not in flesh. So this is fascin really interesting to me. Um I just haven't been taught that I guess. Uh, yeah. but you mentioned Mary. And so I want to talk about that for a little bit. Did Ignatius just share a little bit about his thoughts of Mary's role in uh, yeah. Christology? Right. Um, he, you know, she comes up in the um, in some of these what what I called creedal passages. They're not, you know, that's sometimes I regret using that term because some people just thought I was making some big claim like Ignatius had written the creed. Mm. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they're, he's, you know, kind of getting at the heart of the faith in a sort of narrative way that is strikingly like the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed, et cetera, mm -hmm. that, that develops within the church's, uh, you know, kind of dogmatic tradition. Yeah. Um, so, Mary is, you know, one of these figures in these statements that sort of grounds the faith in historical reality. Hmm. So Ignatius will refer to um, uh, in David, as I said, and Mary. He'll refer to Pontius Pilate, even to Herod in one place. Um, it, in, in these sort of confessional uh, narrative passages where he's trying to get at the heart of the gospel, mm -hmm. right? But um, but Mary seems to have a particular role vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So he'll say in very kind of condensed form that, um, it, you know, Christ comes from the seed of David uh, through the Virgin Mary, and at the same time, um, is is conceived from the Holy Spirit, and he seems to be getting that phrase right out of Matthew uh, one twenty, I think it is. Um, so he's he's very kind of consciously dealing with the question of, <clears throat> excuse me, what happened, you know, when Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb. He's zeroing in on that as mm. the crucial or as a crucial moment along with the Paschal mystery, the, the death and resurrection hmm. uh, in, in his Christology. And to do that, he's got to pull together things from Matthew and Paul and, uh, and John. 
and that that's where his greatness lies, that that's exactly what he's doing. He's connecting the dots, and he's doing it in a way that I, I think is not a sort of forced uh, harmonization. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, um, it's a profound synthesis, really taking seriously Matthew's thought, John's thought, Paul's thought, and, and bringing them together in a, in a uh, constructive synthesis that's really faithful to all three at the same time, as difficult as that sounds. So and, did and he that, ever talk that's about what leads him to oh, the God. sorry, that's what leads him to Mary and to that moment of the conception. So yeah. did he ever discuss how he reconciled um how Jesus could be from the line of David if conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph? Yeah. Well, um uh, I think the implication is um that you know Although he doesn't use the term two natures, mm-hmm. that he is son of God and son of man. Mm. That that's another first, you know, um, leaving aside the exactly how those two titles are used in the New Testament, mm-hmm. as you know, is a huge set of questions. Yep. Many, many books, articles read about written about them. Um, Ignatius does what many later church fathers will do, starting with Irenaeus. Um, he will put those two titles together. Hmm. He does that in Ephesians 20, uh, 19 or 20, I believe. Um, and he's clearly doing it as a, as a sort of shorthand mm-hmm. for saying that he's God and man, right? He's, he's oh, interesting. D- divine and, and human at the same time. So, um, you know, two, two things are sort of simultaneously happening at the conception, a um, a, a fully human baby is being conceived in the womb of a virgin, which of course is absolutely unique, Mm -hmm. but he does, he repeatedly uses the term virgin. Mm -hmm. Um, Not every time, but he uses it uh, and significantly. And at the same time, God is, entering our world Hmm. Uh, god the son or god the word being sent into the world from that you know from the silence of god into into our time and space and so forth Hmm. and so he's both both from he's and he says this explicitly earlier in ephesians from mary and from god Hmm. right that's Hmm. at that passage in ephesians 7 which is um you know the first of those those uh confessional or creedal or quasi-creedal passages um, is is the one that kind of lays out very, very carefully um, a, a a view of Christ as both God and man. Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite wow. remarkable, but that's, mm. that is the way he, he, he uh, reconciles all that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned it a few times and I'm, so I'm curious to, to hear more about it. That what is, is this great silence of God? Yeah, I think it's a way of referring to the the inner life of God or the 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 eternal mystery of God. Hmm. Um, it, it's uh, the closest New Testament parallel is in um, the at the very end of Romans, the doxology at the end of Romans, mm-hmm. where I forget how it's translated, but you don't. 
in the in the standard translations you don't get the idea of silence but it's there in the greek sasige menu um that this the mystery of god is kept in eternal silence or in a mode of eternal silence but then is manifested in christ uh in the person any event of christ so um i think ultimately to understand ignatius and to understand the new testament especially in the area of christology Mm -hmm. um you've got to make a distinction between god himself god in say or god in his inner life Mm -hmm. and um god's action in creating the world and redeeming the world we call the economy uh, well what paul and ignatius following paul calls the oikonomia the economy of god or the arrangement or Hmm. plan of god that's what the word economy means um so you i think you've got to hold that distinction and say that um you know god in himself is eternal, unchangeable, and in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't become Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. Um, and and if you sort of give Ignatius and the New Testament writers the benefit of the doubt along those lines, that they did um, implicitly or tacitly see that distinction, then all sorts of things fall together that otherwise seem problematic mm-hmm. you know I, I think a lot of the problems in Christology in the 20th century come from the idea that God God must himself somehow be a story that he mu- he himself must um, you know become God mm. and uh, and that we've got to collapse that that ancient distinction between uh, who God is in say, in himself and who what god does add extra sort of going forth beyond himself so to speak um yeah so to reiterate and i'm probably gonna sound like a fool because you just said a lot you i'm i'm trying to process uh the distinction between god in in the divine mystery versus god uh acting out in the world or the economy of God. Yeah. Is that what you said? Right. Exactly. Yep. So can can you kind of draw that out a little bit more? How, like sure. why is why is there yep. a distinction between right. God, you know, in the existence and, and the action? Right. Ultimately, uh well a big part of why there's a distinction is because God didn't have to create the world. Hmm. He he's total and perfect in himself and happy in himself it's not like he you know d- despite james walton johnson's beautiful and great poem about the creation where god's got you know sort of feels his need mm-hmm. i mean in a certain sense that might be there might be a god, god creates out of generosity out of you know sheer love and everything but um he 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 is perfect in himself mm-hmm. and he's happy in himself he wants to share that happiness and that being um, with creatures, and that's why he makes the world. That's why he makes us, mm. and that's why he doesn't give up on the world or us. He's going to redeem the the world. He's going to redeem his creation. Mm. Um, so, God is eternally 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's 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 not alone. He's not lonely. He's a trinity of persons, mm-hmm. one in one God, um, and uh, he doesn't have to do anything, but in sheer graciousness, sheer generosity, he creates a world. Hmm. He didn't have to. So we're we're contingent. We're you know we don't have to strictly speaking exist, um, but he's not. He's he's the one truly necessary being. He cannot be other than be because it's his very essence to mm. be. Right? The church fathers would, you know, point to mm. Exodus three at that point. He's he's being itself. Interesting. Oh. Interesting. No, that makes sense, and that's helpful. Um, and to to wrap uh, this conversation up, I'm curious. In your opinion, why should people consider? the work of Ignatius today? Like, what's so important about uh, reading about his work, even in your new book, or your book, Learning Christ? Why is this important? Right, because, um, you know, we we want to read Scripture, and we want to know what God is saying to us in Scripture. And in every age of the Church, we have to, in a sense, do that afresh. We have to interpret Scripture, um, you know, from our perspective and from our situation in history, we want to be do it faithfully, but we, we, we have to receive it, right? But the church has been doing that all down through the ages. And um, to, to go back to somebody who lived, you know, just decades after the events themselves mm-hmm. and, and after the apostles, to go back to somebody who um, wrote and spoke Koine Greek, basically the same sort of Greek that's used in the New Testament, mm. somebody who clearly had studied, um, not just read, but studied these books and prayed about them and thought about them and taught about them um, for years, even though the, the writings we have are all written at the end of his life, on his way to Rome to be martyred. He's clearly not shooting from the hip. He's drawing upon things that he had mm. thought and taught about and studied about for many years. Um, and... Uh, and then somebody who is willing to die for it, who in a sense was eager to die for it uh, and felt that God had called him to be a martyr and that he was going to bear testimony to Christ before the world at, at the Colosseum in Rome um, and to be fed to the beasts. He, he, he felt very strongly that God called him to that and that he needed to sort of seal his testimony. Like if, if, if he hadn't, gone through with it, then we probably shouldn't read his, his, his letters. Right. Um, but he did. And, and so he's, he's a witness and we're fortunate to have these documents that kind of put us close, close to the, 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 be- the very beginning of the church's reception mm. of the new Testament of scripture. Mm. Yeah. That's a helpful perspective. Uh, in, in a class I took recently on um, church's history or church's understanding of of Jesus throughout history. Uh, the professor basically just said, "Oh, we we should do this because you know it's the foundation." But I really appreciate what you just said. Is that especially for Ignatius, uh, he he was there just decades after the events, and that's really convincing to me of of, of spending more time in his work. So thank you so much for your time and, and your work. 
Um, I do I do not take it for granted. I know uh, you are a busy person, uh, so I do thank you. Thank you, Justin. It's been great talking with you. God bless. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.